It's always a challenge to follow President Monson. <laughs> All of the deacons, teachers, and priests, stand up. Will you please just stand up and stretch for a minute? All the former deacons, teachers, and priests, you can stand up for a minute. Thank you very much. I think I'd like to say a few things to the boys, and you old men can listen or sleep. <laughs> What a wonderful thing it is to be young in this time of the history of the Church and the history of the world. Surely this is the great age of enlightenment. This is a time like no other time before. Never before has there been so much of scientific discovery. Never before has there been greater opportunities for education. Never before have there been such widespread opportunities for service in the Church. I almost feel jealous of you, and then I do not. I think of the many problems with which you live. You face difficult temptations that are all around you. It's easy for old men to lecture young men. Rather than do that, I think I would like to do something I've never done before. If you will permit me a personal indulgence, I wish to talk with you about some lessons I learned when I was a boy. I grew up here in Salt Lake City, a very ordinary kind of freckled-faced kid. I had a good father and mother. My father was a man of education and talent. He was respected in the community. He had a love for the Church and for its leaders. President Joseph F. Smith, who was president in my childhood, was one of his heroes. He loved President Heber J. Grant, who became president of the Church in 1918. My mother was a gifted and wonderful woman. She, too, was an educator. But when she married, she left her employment to become a housewife and mother. In our minds, she was a great success. We lived in what I thought was a large home in the First Ward. It had four rooms on the main floor, a kitchen, a dining room, a parlor, and a library. There were four bedrooms upstairs. The house stood on the corner on a large lot. There was a big lawn with many trees that shed millions of leaves and an immense amount of work to be done constantly. In my early childhood, we had a stove in the kitchen and a stove in the dining room. A furnace was later installed, and what a wonderful thing that was. But it had a voracious appetite for coal, and there was no automatic stoker. The coal had to be shoveled into the furnace and carefully banked each night. I learned a great lesson from that monster of a furnace. If you wanted to keep warm, you had to work the shovel. My father had an idea that these boys ought to learn to work, Brother Stanley, in the summer as well as in the winter, and so he bought a five-acre farm which eventually grew to include more than 30 acres. We lived there in the summer and returned to the city when school started. We had a large orchard, and the trees had to be pruned each spring. 
Father took us to pruning demonstrations put on by experts from the Agriculture College. We learned a great truth, that you could pretty well determine the kind of fruits you would pick in September by the way you pruned in February. The idea was to space the branches so that the fruit would be exposed to sunlight and air. Further, we learned that new young wood produces the best fruit. That has had many applications in life. We got sick then just as people get sick now. In fact, I think we did more so. In those early years, the milk we drank was not pasteurized. We, of course, did not have an automatic dishwasher, except that it was our automatic duty to wash the dishes. When we were diagnosed as having chicken pox or measles, the doctor would advise the city health department that a man would be sent to put a sign in the front window. This was a warning to anyone who might wish to come to our house that they did so at their own peril. If the disease were smallpox or diphtheria, the sign was bright orange with black letters. It said, in effect, stay away from this place. I learned something I have always remembered, to watch for signs of danger and evil and stay away. I attended the Hamilton School, which was a big three-story building. The structure was old and poor by today's standards, but I learned that it was not the building that made a difference, it was the teachers. When the weather would permit, we assembled in front of the school in the morning pledged allegiance to the flag, and marched in orderly fashion to our rooms. We dressed neatly for school, and no unkempt appearance was tolerated. The boys wore a shirt and a tie and short trousers. We wore long black stockings that reached from the foot to above the knee. They were made of cotton, and they wore out quickly, and they had to be darned frequently. We learned how to darn because it was unthinkable to go to school with a hole in your stocking. We learned a lesson on the importance of personal neatness and tidiness, and that has blessed my life ever since. The bane of my first grade teacher's life was my friend Louis. He had what psychologists today might call some kind of an obsessive fixation. He would sit in class and chew his tie until it became wet and stringy. <laughs> the teacher would scold him. Louis eventually became a man of substance, and I have learned never to underestimate the potential of a boy to make something of his life, even if he chews his tie. <laughs> As the years passed, I finally reached the sixth grade in that school. My friends were essentially the same through all of those years. People didn't move much in those days. One of my friends was Lynn. That wasn't his real name, but that's what I'll call him. He was always in trouble. Lynn seemed to have a hard time concentrating on what was going on, particularly when spring came and things looked better outside than they did in. Miss Spooner, our teacher, seemed to have it in for Lynn. One day at about 11 o'clock, 
Lynn disturbed the class, and Miss Spooner told him to go shut himself in the closet until she let him out. Lynn obediently went to the closet and closed the door behind him. When the bell rang at 12 o'clock, Lynn came out chewing the last bite of Miss Spooner's lunch. <clears throat> we couldn't help laughing, all but Miss Spooner, and that made matters worse. Lynn went on clowning throughout his life. He never learned until it was too late that life is a serious thing in which serious choices are to be made with much of care and prayer. The next year we enrolled in junior high school, but the building could not accommodate all the students, and so our class of the seventh grade was sent back to the Hamilton School. We were insulted. We were furious. We'd spent six unhappy years in that building and we felt we deserved something better. The boys of the class all met after school. We decided we wouldn't tolerate this kind of treatment. We were determined we'd go on strike. The next day, we did not show up, but we had no place to go. We couldn't stay home because our mothers would ask questions. We didn't think of going downtown to a show. We had no money for that. We didn't think of going to the park. We were afraid we might be seen by Mr. Clayton, the truant officer. We didn't think of going out behind the school fence and telling shady stories because we didn't know any. <laughs> We'd never heard of such things as drugs or anything of the kind. We just wandered about and wasted the day. The next morning, the principal, Mr. Stearns, was at the front door of the school to greet us. His demeanor matched his name. He, sa he said some pretty straightforward things and then told us that we could not come back to school until we brought a note from our parents. That was my first experience with a lockout. <laughs> Striking, he said was not the way to settle a problem. We were expected to be responsible citizens, and if we had a complaint, we could come to the principal's office and discuss it. There was only one thing to do, and that was to go home and get the note. I remember walking sheepishly in the house. My mother asked what was wrong. I told her. I said that I needed a note. She wrote a note. It was very brief. It was the most stinging rebuke she ever gave me. It read as follows. Dear Mr. Stearns, please excuse Gordon's absence yesterday. His action was simply an impulse to follow the crowd. She signed it and handed it to me. I walked back over to school and got there about the same time a few other boys did. We all handed our notes to Mr. Stearns. I do not know whether he read them, but I have never forgotten my mother's note. Though I had been an active party to the action we had taken, I resolved then and there that I would never do anything on the basis of simply following the crowd. I determined then and there that I would make my own decisions 
on the basis of their merits and my standards and not be pushed in one direction or another by those around me. That decision has blessed my life many times, sometimes in very uncomfortable circumstances. It has kept me from doing some things which, if indulged in, could at worst have resulted in serious injury and trouble, and at the best would have cost me my self-respect. My father had a horse and buggy when I was a boy. Then one summer in 1916, a wonderful thing happened. It was an unforgettable thing. When he came home that evening, he arrived in a shining black, brand-new Model T Ford. It was a wonderful machine, but by today's standards, it was a crude and temperamental sort of thing. For instance, it did not have a self-starter. It had to be cranked. You learned something very quickly about cranking that car. You retarded the spark or the crank would kick back and break your hand. When it rained, the coils would get wet and then it would not start at all. From that car, I learned a few simple things about making preparation to save trouble. A little canvas over the cowl would keep the coils dry. A little care in retarding the spark would make it possible to crank without breaking your hand. But the most interesting thing was the lights. The car had no storage battery. The only electricity came from what was called a magneto. The output of the magneto was determined by the speed of the engine. If the engine was running fast, the lights were bright. If the engine slowed, the lights became a sickly yellow. I learned that if you wanted to see ahead as you were going down the road, you had to keep the engine running at a fast clip. So, just as I've discovered it is with our lives, industry, enthusiasm, and hard work lead to enlightened progress. You have to stay on your feet and keep moving if you're going to have light in your life. I still have the radiator cap of that old 1916 Model T. Here it is. It is a reminder of lessons I learned 77 years ago. I've learned something else from that car. I now ride in a car of modern vintage. It is quiet and powerful. It has every convenience, including heating and air conditioning. What has made the difference between that old black 1916 hard-riding and noisy Model T and today's automobiles? The difference has come because thousands of dedicated and able men and women over two generations of time have planned and studied, experimented, and worked together to bring about improvement. I have learned that when people of goodwill labor cooperatively in an honest and dedicated way, there is no end to what they can accomplish. In 1915, President Joseph F. Smith asked the people of the church to have family home evening. My father said we would do so, that we would warm up the parlor where Mother's grand piano stood and do what the president of the church had asked. We were miserable performers as children. We could do all kinds of things together while playing, but for one of us to try to sing a solo before the others, 
was like asking ice cream to stay hard on the kitchen stove. In the beginning, we would laugh and make cute remarks about one another's performance. But our parents persisted. We sang together, we prayed together, we listened quietly while Mother read Bible and Book of Mormon stories. Father told us stories out of his memory. I still remember one of those stories. I found it recently while going through a book he had published some years ago. Listen to it. An older boy and his young companion were walking along a road which led through a field. They saw an old coat and a badly worn pair of men's shoes by the roadside, and in the distance they saw the owner working in the field. The younger boy suggested that they hide the shoes, conceal themselves, and watch the perplexity on the owner's face when he returned. The older boy thought that would not be so good. He said this owner must be a very poor man from the looks of his clothes. So after talking the matter over at his suggestion, they concluded to try another experiment. Instead of hiding the shoes, they would put a silver dollar in, in each one. They happened each to have a silver dollar. They don't make them like that anymore. And see what the owner did when he discovered the money. So that's what they did. Pretty soon the man returned from the field, put on his coat, slipped one foot into his shoe, felt something hard, took it out, and found a silver dollar. Wonder and surprise shone upon his face. He looked at the dollar again and again, turned around and could see nobody, then proceeded to put on the other shoe, when to his great surprise he found another dollar. His feelings overcame him. He knelt down and offered aloud a prayer of thanksgiving, in which he spoke of his wife being sick and helpless, and his children without bread. He fervently thanked the Lord for this bounty from unknown hands and evoked the blessings of heaven upon those who had given him this needed help. The boys remained hidden until he had gone. They had been touched by his prayer and felt something warm within their hearts. As they left to walk down the road, one said to the other, Now, really, don't you have a good feeling? Out of those simple little meetings held in the parlor of our old home came something indescribable and wonderful. Our love for our parents was strengthened. Our love for brothers and sisters was enhanced. Our love for the Lord was increased. An appreciation for simple goodness grew in our hearts. These wonderful things came about because our parents followed the counsel of the President of the Church. I have learned something tremendously significant out of that. In that old home, we knew that our father loved our mother. That was another, another of the great lessons of my boyhood. I have no recollection of ever hearing him speak unkindly to her or of her. 
He encouraged her in her individual church activities and in neighborhood and civic responsibilities. She had much of native talent, and he encouraged her to use it. Her comfort was his constant concern. We looked upon them as equals, companions who worked together and loved and appreciated one another as they loved us. She likewise encouraged him, did everything in the world to make him happy. At the age of 50, she developed cancer. He was solicitous of her every need. I recall our family prayers with his tearful pleadings and our tearful pleadings. Of course, there was no medical insurance then. He would have spent every dollar he owned to help her. He did, in fact, spend very much. He took her to Los Angeles in search of better, better medical care, but it was to no avail. That was 62 years ago. But I remember with clarity my broken-hearted father as he stepped off the train and greeted his grief-stricken children. We walked solemnly down the station platform to the baggage car where the casket was unloaded and taken by the mortician. We came to know even more about the tenderness of our father's heart. This has had an effect on me all of my life. I also came to know something of death, the absolute devastation of children losing their mother, but also of peace without pain and the certainty that death cannot be the end of the soul. We didn't openly speak about love for one another very much in those days. We didn't have to. We felt that security, that peace, that quiet strength which comes to families who pray together, work together, and help one another. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. As a boy, I came to believe in that divine commandment. I think it is such a great commandment from the Lord. If it were only observed more widely, there would be far less misery in the homes of the people. Instead of backbiting, accusation, argument, there would be appreciation and respect and quiet love. My father is long since gone. I have become a father and a grand grandfather and a great-grandfather. The Lord has been very kind. I have experienced my share of disappointments, of failures, of difficulties, but on balance life has been very good. I have tried to live it with enthusiasm and appreciation. I have known much of happiness, oh, so very much. The root of it all, I believe, was planted in my childhood and nurtured in the home, the school, and the ward in which I grew, where I learned simple but important lessons, lessons in living. I cannot be grateful enough. My heart aches. I grieve when I see the tragedy of so many broken homes, of homes where husbands do not seem to know how to treat their wives, of homes where children are abused and grow to become the abusers of another generation. None of this tragedy is necessary. I know it is not. The answer to our problems, 
lies in following the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who brought into the world his Father's love. Brethren, will you forgive me for taking your time to talk in a personal way as I have done? I did not know how to say what I wanted to say without doing so. Young men, do what is right. Let the consequence follow. Choose the right when a choice is placed before you. Fathers, be good men that your wives will speak of you with love and appreciation, and your children will remember you with gratitude everlasting. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. On behalf of the Presidency of the Seventy, we welcome with joy Brother Todd Christofferson and Brother Neil Anderson to the ranks of the Seventy. We look forward to serving with you. There have been many inspiring messages given from this tabernacle pulpit about prayer, and today I add my testimony of the blessing of peace that comes through the miraculous power of prayer. Alexander Dumas, in his classic tale, The Count of Monte Cristo, wrote, For the happy man, prayer is only a jumble of words until the day when sorrow comes to explain to him the sublime language by means of which he speaks to God. It was a happy, carefree time in my young life until on such a day sorrow and tragedy brought me closer to God in humble, sincere prayer. In the summer of my thirteenth year, on a July night, I eagerly joined some neighborhood friends in to light fireworks. Five of us took turns igniting the colorful assortment of Roman candles and rockets and firecrackers. Each was a new surprise as it burst, its burst of sights and sounds went through the evening sky. Well, not all of our fireworks worked as they should have. Most, in fact, were what we called duds. They sputtered momentarily and then died. Well, we set the duds aside until we had tried to light off all the fireworks. We had so many defective ones remaining, we wondered what to do. We, we couldn't just throw them away. Uh, what if we emptied the powder from all of them into the cardboard box? We could toss in a match and have one gigantic blast. <laughs> well, fortunately for us, our idea failed at first. The match was tossed. We quickly ran away and waited. Nothing happened. Pressing our luck, we tried a second time using a makeshift fuse of rolled-up newspaper. Again, we anxiously waited at a distance. Again, to our good, nothing happened. That's when we should have quit. Well, foolishly, we gave it one more try. <laughs> this time, my friend Mark and I huddled around the box to keep the flame from it being extinguished by the evening breeze. <laughs> well, then it happened. The gigantic blast we thought we wanted exploded with fury into our faces. The force of the explosion knocked us off our feet, and flames from the ignited powder burned us severely. It was a tragic scene. Responding quickly to the screams and cries of the injured youth in her driveway, our friend's mother gathered us into her home. First, we will pray, she said, and then we will call a doctor. 
That was the first of many prayers I remember being offered for us. Soon after, I felt my face, hands, and arms being wrapped in bandages. I heard the voices of my father and my doctor administering a priesthood blessing to me. I heard my mother's voice many times pleading with Heavenly Father to please let her son see again. I had been taught very early in my life to pray. Mother and father had made prayer an important part of our family life. Not until that day, however, did it become so meaningful to me. In those frightening moments, I found peace and comfort through prayer. Recently, in his own pain and suffering, my friend and associate, Elder Clinton Cutler, said of his experience, The Lord's peace comes not without pain, but in the midst of pain. Our Father in Heaven has promised us peace in times of trial and has provided a way for us to come to Him in our need. He has given us the privilege and power of prayer. He has told us to pray always and has promised He will pour out His Spirit upon us. Thankfully, we can call upon Him anytime, anywhere. We can speak to Him in the quiet thoughts of our mind and from the deepest feelings of our heart. It has been said, prayer is made up of heart throbs and the righteous yearnings of the soul. Our Heavenly Father has told us He knows our thoughts and the intents of our heart. President Marion G. Romney taught, Sometimes the Lord puts thoughts in our minds in answers to prayers. He gives us peace in our minds. Quote. For example, in response to Oliver Cowdery's prayer to know if the translation of the plates by Joseph Smith was true, the Lord answered, Did I not speak peace to your mind concerning the matter? What greater witness can you have than from God? The peace God speaks to our minds will let us know when decisions we have made are right, when our course is true. It can come as personal inspiration and guidance to assist us in our daily life, or in our homes, in our work. It can provide us with courage and hope to meet the challenges we face. The miracle of prayer, to me, is that in the private, quiet chambers of our mind and heart, God both hears and answers prayers. Perhaps the greatest test of our faith and the most difficult part of prayer may be to recognize the answer that comes to us in a thought or a feeling and then to accept or to act upon the answer God chooses to give. Consistency in prayer along with searching the scriptures and following the counsel of living prophets keeps us in tune with the Lord and, and enables us to interpret the promptings of the Spirit more easily. The Lord has said, Learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. A few days ago, I attended a funeral of a lifelong friend, Ralph Polson. He was a righteous man of accomplishment and integrity, yet he had to endure the pain and sorrow inflicted upon him by the consequences of a cruel disease. His dear wife, Joyce, suffered also as she was by his side through his agony and pain. As the days and years of suffering went on, 
She arrived at a time when she felt she could not handle another day. She'd done all she could for him. Now, a strength beyond her own was needed. In the depth of her sorrow, she pleaded more fervently to God for his help. With the morning came a blessed peace that filled her whole soul, a peace that has continued with her to this day. There is terrible suffering in our world today. Tragic things happen to good people. God does not cause them, nor does he always prevent them. He does, however, strengthen us and bless us with his peace through earnest prayer. It is not the usual purpose of prayer to serve us like Aladdin's lamp to bring ease without effort, Elder Richard L. Evans wrote. Prayer is not a matter of asking only. It should not be always as the beggar's upturned hand. Often, the purpose of prayer is to give us strength to do what needs to be done, wisdom to see the way to solve our own problems, and ability to do our best in our tasks. We need to pray for strength to endure, for faith and fortitude to face what sometimes must be faced. The Savior taught us by his own example how to find peace when the answers we receive are not what we asked for. On the eve of his crucifixion, with soul exceedingly sorrowful even unto death, Jesus knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed to the Father, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, and he acknowledged all things are possible unto thee, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. We can only try to imagine the anguish the Savior felt when we read in the Gospels that he was sore amazed and very heavy, that he fell on his face and prayed not once, but a second time, and then a third, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. We cannot imagine the anguish of a loving father who, knowing what had to be done, accepted his beloved son's willingness to suffer for all mankind. In this agony, Christ was not left alone. As if the Father were saying, I cannot take it from you, but I can and will send you strength and peace, there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. If we, like the Savior, have the faith to put our trust in our Father in heaven, to submit to his will, the true spirit of peace will come as a witness and strength that he has heard and answered our prayers. If we resist the inspiration of God and turn from his promptings, we are left to our own confusion and lack of peace. Sometimes when our prayers are not answered as we desire, we may feel the Lord has rejected us or that our prayer was in vain. We may begin to doubt our worthiness before God or even the reality and power of prayer. That is when we must continue to pray with patience and faith and to listen for that peace. Following the incident when I was badly burned, I had felt with assurity that I would be healed. 
From the moment that first prayer was offered in my friend's home, I felt a comforting peace. While the doctor treated my burns, I hummed a hymn, finding comfort in these words. When sore trials came upon you, did you think to pray? Oh, <laughs> how How praying rests the weary. Prayer will change the night today. So when life gets dark and dreary, don't forget to pray. My family was praying I wouldn't cry. (laughs) Well, each day when the doctor changed my bandages, my doctor would ask, or my mother would ask, can he see? And for many days the answer was the same, no, not yet. Finally, when all the bandages were permanently removed, my eyesight began to return, and I had anticipated that time with anxious expectation. The peace and comfort I had earlier felt gave me assurance that all would be well. However, when my vision cleared enough for me to see my hands and face, I was shocked, unprepared for what I saw. To my terrible disappointment, I found that all was not well. Seeing my scarred and disfigured skin brought great fear and doubt into my mind, and I can remember thinking, nothing can help this skin to be healed, not even the Lord. Gratefully, as my prayers and the prayers of others continued, I felt the gifts of faith and of peace restored. And then, in time, my eyesight and my skin were healed. My friends who were injured were also blessed with complete recovery. May we always seek to obtain the Lord's miraculous gift of peace through prayer. May we not forget to pray. I join with Alma in saying, May the peace of God rest upon you from this time forth and forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Today is the day the Christian world traditionally calls Palm Sunday. It is the anniversary of that momentous occasion nearly 2,000 years ago when Jesus of Nazareth, the very Son of God himself, began the ultimate declaration of his divinity and entered the holy city of Jerusalem as the promised Messiah that he was. Riding on a young donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah's ancient prophecy, he approached the temple on a path the jubilant crowd lined for him with palm leaves, flowering branches, and some of their own garments, thus carpeting the way properly for the passing of a king. He was their king. These were his subjects. 
Hosanna to the son of David, they shouted. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Of course, that path so lovingly lined was soon to lead to an upper room and then to Gethsemane. After stops at the home of an Annas, the court of Caiaphas, and the Roman headquarters of Pilate, it would, of course, lead on to Calvary, and it would not end there. The path would lead to the garden tomb and the triumphant hour of resurrection that we celebrate each year on Easter Sunday, one week from today. In this lovely springtime season of the year, this annual awakening when in the Northern Hemisphere the world is renewed, blossoms, and turns green and fresh again, we instantly turn our thoughts to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer of mankind, the source of light and life and love. As a Palm Sunday and Easter season message, I have chosen for my brief text this morning the words of an ancient and sacred hymn which are attributed to Bernard of Clairvaux and estimated to be nearly 900 years old. With the rest of the Christian world, the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints sing reverently, Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills my breast. But sweeter far thy face to see, and in thy presence rest. On Palm Sunday and next week on Easter Sunday, our minds turn very naturally to wonderful thoughts of Jesus. Indeed, Easter, along with perhaps Christmas, may be the only time in the whole year that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ's flock find their way to church. That is admirable, but we wonder if thoughts of Jesus, which with sweetness fill our breast, ought not to be far more frequent and much more constant in all times and seasons of our lives. How often, how, how often do we think of the Savior? How deeply and how gratefully and how adorningly do we reflect on his life? How central to our lives do we know him to be? For example, how much of a normal day, a working week, or a fleeting month 
is devoted to Jesus, the very thought of thee. Perhaps for some of us, not enough. Surely life would be more peaceful. Surely marriages and families would be stronger. Certainly neighborhoods and nations would be safer and kinder and more constructive if more of the gospel of Jesus Christ with sweetness could fill our breasts. Unless we pay more attention to the thoughts of our hearts, I wonder what hope we have to claim that greater joy, that sweeter prize, someday his loving face to see and in his presence rest. Every day of our lives and in every season of the year, not just at Easter time, Jesus asks each of us, as he did following his triumphant entry into Jerusalem those many years ago, What think ye of Christ? Whose Son is he? We declare that he is the Son of God, and the reality of that fact should stir our souls more frequently. I pray that it will this Easter season and always. Nor voice can sing, nor heart can frame, nor can the memory find a sweeter sound than thy blessed name, O Savior of mankind. We testify, as the ancient prophets and apostles did, that the name of Christ is the only name under heaven whereby a man, woman, or child can be saved. It is a blessed name, a gracious name, a sacred name. Truly no voice can sing nor heart can frame a sweeter sound than that blessed name. But even as we should think on the name of Christ more often and use it more wisely and well, how tragic it is and how deeply we are pained that the name of the Savior of mankind has become one of the most common and most ill-used of profanities. In this Easter season of the year, when we are reminded yet again of all Christ has done for us, how dependent we are upon his redeeming grace and personal resurrection, and how singular his name is in the power to dispel evil and death and save the human soul. May we all do more to respect and revere his holy name and gently, courteously encourage others to do the same. With this lovely hymn as a reminder, let us lift the use of the name of deity to the sacred, sweet elevation. 
that it deserves and that has indeed been commanded. In our own day, as in ancient times, Christ has declared, Let all men beware how they take my name in their lips. Remember that which cometh from above is sacred and must be spoken with care and by constraint of the Spirit. We love the name of our Redeemer. May we redeem it from misuse to its rightful, lofty position. O hope of every contrite heart, O joy of all the meek, to those who fall, how kind thou art, how good to those who seek. What a lovely verse of music and what a message of hope and anchored in the gospel of Christ. Is there one among us in any walk of life who does not need hope and seek for greater joy? These are the universal needs and longings of the human soul, and they are the promises of Christ to his followers. Hope is extended to every contrite heart, and joy comes to all the make. Contrition is costly. It costs us our pride and our insensitivity, but it especially costs us our sins. For as King Lamoni's father knew twenty centuries ago, this is the price of true hope. O God, he cried, wilt thou make thyself known unto me, and I will give away all my sins to know thee, that I may be raised from the dead and saved at the last day. When we too are willing to give away all our sins to know him and follow him, we too will be filled with the joy of eternal life. And what of the meek? In a world too preoccupied with winning intimidation and seeking to be number one, no large crowd of folk is standing in line to buy books that call for mere meekness. But the meek shall inherit the earth, a pretty impressive corporate takeover, and done without intimidation. Sooner or later, and we pray sooner than later, everyone will acknowledge that Christ's way is not only the right way, but ultimately the only way to hope and joy. Every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that gentleness is better than brutality, that kindness is greater than coercion, that the soft voice turneth away wrath. In the end and sooner 
that whatever, than whatever possible. We must be more like Him. To those who fall, how kind Thou art! How good to those who seek! May I close my remarks as did the author of that ancient hymn, Jesus, our only joy be Thou, as Thou our prize will be. Jesus, be Thou our glory now and through eternity. That is my personal prayer and my wish for all the world this morning. I testify that Jesus is the only true source of lasting joy, that our only lasting peace is in Him to be our glory now. The glory each of us yearns for individually and the only prize men and nations can permanently hold dear. He is our prize in time and in eternity. Every other prize is finally fruitless. Every other grandeur fades with time and dissolves with the elements. In the end, just as in this Passover week, we will know no true joy, save it be in Christ. At this sacred season of the year, filled with the promise of renewing life, may we be more devoted and disciplined followers of Christ. May we cherish Him in our thoughts and speak His name with love. May we kneel before Him with meekness and mercy. May we bless and serve others that they may do the same. Jesus, our only joy be Thou, as Thou our prize will be. Jesus, be Thou our glory now and through eternity. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. President David O. McKay would frequently suggest the need for us to turn from the hectic day-to-day -day schedule filled with letters to answer, calls to be made, people to see, meetings to attend, and take time to meditate, to ponder, and to reflect on the eternal truths and the sources of the joy and happiness which comprise each person's quest. When we do, the mundane, the mechanical, the repetitious patterns of our lives yield to the spiritual qualities, and we acquire a much-needed dimension which inspires our daily living. When I follow this counsel, Thoughts of family, experiences with friends, and treasured memories of special days and quiet nights course through my mind and bring a sweet repose to my being. The Christmas season, with its special meaning, inevitably prompts a tear, inspires a renewed commitment to God, and provides, borrowing the words from the lovely song, 
Calvary, rest to the weary, and peace to the soul. I reflect on the contrasts of Christmas, the extravagant gifts expensively packaged, professionally wrapped, reached their zenith in the famed commercial catalogs carrying the headline, quote, For the person who has everything. In one such reading, I observed a 4,000-square-foot home wrapped with a gigantic ribbon and a comparable greeting card which said, Merry Christmas. Other items included diamond-studded clubs for the golfer, a Caribbean cruise for the traveler, and a luxury trip to the Swiss Alps for the adventurer. Such seemed to fit the theme of a Christmas cartoon, which showed the three wise men traveling to Bethlehem with gift boxes on their camels. One says, Mark my words, Balthazar, we're starting something with these gifts that's going to get way out of hand. (laughs) Then there is the remembered Christmas tale of O. Henry about a young husband and wife who lived in abject poverty, yet who wanted to give one another a special gift, but they had nothing to give. Then the husband had a ray of inspiration. I shall provide my dear wife a beautiful ornamental comb to adorn her magnificent long black hair. The wife also received an idea. I shall obtain a lovely chain for my husband's prized watch, which he values so highly. Christmas Day came. The treasured gifts were exchanged. Then the surprise ending, so typical of O. Henry's short stories. The wife had shorn her long hair and sold it to obtain funds to purchase the watch chain, only to discover that her husband had sold his watch, that he might purchase the comb to adorn her beautiful long hair, which now she did not have. At home, in a hidden away corner, I have a small black walking stick with an imitation silver handle. It once belonged to a distant relative. Why do I keep it for a period now spanning 60 years? There's a special reason. You see, as a very small boy, I participated in a Christmas pageant in our ward. I was privileged to be one of the three wise men. With a bandana about my head, mother's chickering piano bench cover draped over my shoulder, and the black cane in my hand, I spoke my assigned lines. Where is he that is born King of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. I don't recall all of the words in that pageant, but I vividly remember the feelings of my heart as the three of us wise men looked upward and saw a star, journeyed across the stage, found Mary with the young child Jesus, then fell down and worshipped him and opened our treasures and presented gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I especially like the fact that we did not return to the evil Herod to betray the baby Jesus, but obeyed God and departed another way. The years have flown by. The events of a busy life take their proper places in the hallowed halls of memory, but the Christmas cane continues to occupy its special place in my home and in my heart is a commitment to Christ. For a few moments, 
May we set aside the catalogs of Christmas with their gifts of exotic description. Let's even turn from the flowers for mother, the special tie for father, the cute doll, the train that whistles, the long-awaited bicycle, even the Star Trek books and videos, and direct our thoughts to those God-given gifts that endure. I've just chosen from a long list simply four. First, the gift of birth. Second, the gift of peace. Third, the gift of love. Fourth, the gift of life eternal. First, the gift of birth. It has been universally bestowed on each of us. Ours was the divine privilege to depart our heavenly home, to tabernacle in the flesh, and to demonstrate by our lives our worthiness and qualifications to one day return to Him, precious loved ones, and a kingdom called celestial. Our mothers and our fathers bestowed this marvelous gift on us. Ours is the responsibility to show our gratitude by the actions of our lives. My own father, a printer, gave to me a copy of a piece he had printed. It was entitled, A Letter from a Father, and concluded with this thought. Perhaps my greatest hope as a parent is to have such a relationship with you that when the day comes and you look down into the face of your first child, you will feel deep within you the desire to be to your child the kind of parent your dad has tried to be to you. What greater compliment could any man ask? Love, Dad. Our gratitude to Mother for the gift of birth is equal to or beyond that owed to Father. She who looked upon us as a sweet new blossom of humanity, fresh fallen from God's own home to flower on earth, and cared for our every need, comforted our every cry, and later rejoiced in any of our accomplishments and wept over our failures and disappointments, occupies a singular place of honor in our hearts. A passage from 3 John sets forth the formula whereby we might express to our parents our gratitude for the gift of birth. I quote, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Let us so walk. Let us so honor the givers of this priceless gift of birth. Second, the gift of peace. Oh, in the raucous world in which we live, the din of traffic, the blaring commercials of the media, the sheer demands placed upon our time, to say nothing of the problems of the world, cause headache, inflict pain, and sap our strength to cope. The burden of sickness or the grief of mourning a loved one departed brings us to our knees seeking heavenly help. With the ancients we may wonder, is there no balm in Gilead? There is a certain sadness, even hopelessness, in the verse, There's never a life without sadness. There's never a heart free from pain. If one seeks in this world for true solace, he seeks it forever in vain. He who was burdened with sorrow and acquainted with grief speaks to every troubled heart and bestows the gift of peace. 
Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, giveth I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He sends forth his word through the missionaries, serving far and wide, proclaiming his gospel of good tidings and salutation of peace, vexing questions such as, From whence did I come? What is the purpose of my being? Whence goeth I after death? are answered by his special servants. Frustration flees, doubt disappears, and wonder wanes when truth is taught in boldness, yet in a spirit of humility, by those who have been called to serve the Prince of Peace, even the Lord Jesus Christ. His gift is bestowed individually. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him. The passport to peace is the practice of prayer. The feelings of the heart, humbly expressed, rather than a mere recitation of words, provide the peace we seek. In Shakespeare's Hamlet, the wicked King Claudius kneels and tries to pray, but he rises and says, My words fly up, my thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. One who received and welcomed the gift of peace was Joseph Millet, an early missionary to the maritime provinces of Canada, who learned while there and in his later experiences in life as a miller of the need to rely on heavenly help, an experience which he recalled in his journal is a beautiful illustration of simple yet profound faith. And I quote, One of my children came in, said that Brother Newton Hall's folks were out of bread, had none that day. I put our flour in a sack to send up to Brother Hall's. But just then, Brother Hall came in. Says I, Brother Hall, how are you fixed for flour? Brother Millet, we have none. Well, Brother Hall, There's some in that sack. I divided it and was going to send it to you. Your children told mine that you were out. Brother Hall began to cry. Said he had tried others, couldn't get any. Went to the cedars and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him to go to Joseph Millet. Well, Brother Hall, you needn't bring this back if the Lord sent you for it. You don't owe me for it. You can't tell me how good it made me feel to know that the Lord knew that there was even such a person as Joseph Millet. Prayer brought the gift of peace to Nelson Hall and to Joseph Millet. Third, the gift of love. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? queried the lawyer who spoke to Jesus. Came the prompt reply, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On another occasion the Lord taught, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. The scriptures are filled with the importance of love and its relevance in our lives. 
The Book of Mormon teaches that charity is the pure love of Christ. The Master himself provided an ideal pattern for us to follow. Of him it was said that he went about doing good, for God was with him. A few lines from the favorite musical, The Sound of Music, suggest a course of action all might well follow. A bell is no bell till you ring it. A song is no song till you sing it. And love in your heart wasn't put there to stay. Love isn't love till you give it away. A segment of our society, desperately yearning for an expression of true love, is found among those growing older, and particularly when they suffer from pangs of loneliness, the chill wind of dying hopes and vanished dreams whistles through the ranks of the elderly and those who approach the declining side of the summit of life. What they need in the loneliness of their older years is, in part at least, what we needed in the uncertain years of our youth, a sense of belonging and assurance of being wanted and the kindly ministrations of loving hearts and hands, not merely dutiful formality, not merely a room in a building, but room in someone's heart and life. We cannot bring them back the morning hours of youth, but we can help them live in the warm glow of a sunset made more beautiful by our thoughtfulness, by our provision, and by our active and unfeigned love. So wrote Elder Richard L. Evans some years ago. At times, an awareness of the elderly is brought into focus by a reminder from one ever so young. May I share with you a Pakistani folktale which illustrates this truth? An ancient grandmother lived with her daughter and grandson. As she grew frail and feeble, instead of being a help around the house, she became a constant trial. She broke plates and cups, lost knives, spilled water. One day, exasperated because the old woman had broken another precious plate, the daughter sent the grandson to buy his grandmother a wooden plate. The boy hesitated because he knew a wooden plate would humiliate his grandmother. But his mother insisted, so off he went. He returned, bringing not one, but two wooden plates. I only asked you to buy one, his mother said. Didn't you hear me? Yes, said the boy. But I bought the second one, so there would be one for you when you get old. <laughs> Frequently, we're inclined to wait a lifetime to express love for the kindness or help given by another even long years before. Perhaps just such an experience prompted George Herbert to say, Thou that hast given so much to me, give me one thing more, a grateful heart. The story is told of a group of men who were talking about people who had influenced their lives and to whom they were grateful. One man thought of a high school teacher who had introduced him to Tennyson. He decided to write and thank her. In time, written in a feeble scrawl, came this letter. My dear Willie, I can't tell you how much your note meant to me. I'm in my 80s, living alone in a small room, cooking my own meals, lonely and like the last leaf, lingering behind 
You will be interested to know that I taught school for 50 years, and yours is the first note of appreciation I have ever received. It came on a blue, cold morning, and it cheered me as nothing has for years. As I read this account, I thought of the treasured line, The Lord has two homes, heaven and a grateful heart. Much more could be said pertaining to the gift of love. However, a favorite verse sums up rather well this precious gift. I have wept in the night for the shortness of sight that to somebody's need made me blind. But I never have yet felt a tinge of regret for being a little too kind. Fourth, the gift of life, even immortality. Our Heavenly Father's plan contains the ultimate expressions of true love. All that we hold dear, even our families, our friends, our joy, our knowledge, our testimonies, would vanish were it not for our Father and His Son, the Lord, Jesus Christ. Among the most cherished thoughts and writings in this world is the divine statement of truth, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. This precious Son, our Lord and Savior, atoned for our sins and the sins of all. That memorable night in Gethsemane, His suffering was so great, His anguish so consuming, that He pleaded, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou wilt. Later, on the cruel cross, He died that we might live and live everlastingly. Resurrection morning was preceded by pain, by suffering, in accordance with the divine plan of God. Before Easter, there had to be a cross. The world has witnessed no greater gift, nor has it known more lasting love. Nephi gives to us our charge. Ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope, and a love of God and of all men. If ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ, and endure to the end, behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. And now behold, this is the way, and there is none other way nor name given under heaven, whereby man can be saved in the kingdom of God. I close with the words, of a revered prophet, even President Harold B. Lee. Life is God's gift to man. What we do with our life is our gift to God. May we give generously to Him as He has so abundantly given to us by living and loving as He and His Son have so patiently taught is my earnest prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.